Hi, all, and welcome to a special Mike Donahue podcast, uh, Tilting at Windmills. Um, as you know, I've been off the air for a while, uh, no small coincidence. Um, I had been planning, actually, a, a three-part series on gun control in America, um, and I had solicited uh, three guests from uh, from pro-Second uh, Amendment groups on Reddit, uh, and all three interviewees were knowledgeable, and uh, it was a fun talking to sort of conversation. And as I was going through the sort of the post-production, you know, cleaning up the audio, uh, getting things ready for the website, um, the Pittsburgh Tensil- Temple shooting happened, and it was just sort of a, a, a bit of a slap in the face, I think when you're when you're trying to have a discussion about something that's that gets pretty raw pretty quickly and then lo and behold uh on the day i'm about to hit the publish button uh, something terrible happens again so i decided uh that the timing was not right that i shouldn't uh send that out on on you know on that day let alone that weekend and so i decided just to put it in the can for a couple weeks and just sort of sit on it and, and wait till things sort of calm down a bit. And that is when the Thousand Oaks shooting happened. Um, again, uh, right when I was about to republish. And again, it just, it felt like this sort of really dark, weird humor of, you know, can we, can we go a week or two weeks in this country uh, without a mass shooting? So... I, I did a lot of soul searching over the last month or so, and um, I thought a lot about guns uh, in in that time. And I'll, I'll, I, what I've decided to do is I, I took one of the better of the three. They were all good, but I, I think I had more uh, common ground uh, with with this gentleman you're about to hear. And I'm, I'm just going to do it as a regular one-hour podcast. And at the end, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, which is sort of tag um, my thoughts and opinions on on to the end of it, which isn't super fair to the gentleman that I was interviewing, um, because it's, you know it's it's just me ranting on for a bit. But um, hopefully, you'll stick around for that, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, everyone, and welcome to uh, the second part of our ongoing conversation about uh, gun control in the United States or gun rights in the uh, United States, depending on how you want to take a look at it. Joining me now, I'm lucky to have uh, Ben uh, from also another uh, contributor on on Reddit uh, to to, to talk about mostly about the um, statistics and facts um, surrounding gun control and uh, gun advocacy in America. And, and to try and get uh, sort of a non-emotional, unbiased perspective on, on where things stand. Uh, ben, as it turns out, was a uh, former um, anti-poaching officer in Zimbabwe, uh, which is, uh, yeah, I'm still uh, a little starry-eyed over that one. Uh, so don't tell my girlfriend, Ben. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and then also he had uh, former military backing. So Ben knows of what he speaks. So welcome, Ben. Thank you, sir. So Ben, um, you want to start off with some some 
statistics or some just a, a baseline sort of understanding because I guess can you can you when I when I say things that that I describe myself as moderate, right? Where I say, yeah, some gun ownership is okay, but we should have more uh, effective legislation or some different legislation. When when I say stuff like that, what is your sort of internal response to that? So for me, a lot of it comes down to what exactly that means, like what sort of legislation people are uh, planning on pursuing. Uh, me personally, I do believe that there needs to be a regulatory system in place. However, what exactly that regulates is sort of what's mainly up for debate. Uh, what you commonly see between the various, uh, and I'll say extreme groups, you know, and I won't go right or left, just, you know, very for gun control, very against. You'll have, you know, on one side of the argument, they think that any sort of regulation means, you know, people are going to be taking firearms, that sort of thing. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, there is the misinformation that you can go to, a, you know, a Walmart, walk in, buy, you know, a rifle or shotgun within 15 minutes and then leave. Um, which, of course, is factual in some states, but that depends a lot on state law. And so the issue is you have these two conflicting sides that can't make up their mind on what's good or what isn't. And that causes a lot of strife. And so people, generally speaking, are unlikely to listen to another side of the argument because, you know, various reasonings or various emotional uh, investments to the situation. For example, the uh, um, with AR-15 style rifles that people like to reference, they like to reference Las, the Las Vegas tragedy, the Parkland shooting, that sort of stuff, without actually analyzing why those particular events happened or what could have been done outside of the tool itself in order to prevent that from happening. But, but you, I mean, you get that, right. And you, I think you said as, as, as much to me, but you get that when a layman um, sees these things or hears these things, and there's no, there's no understanding of the stats involved that really emotion is all we have to go on. Eh? That, that's correct. And that's not necessarily a uh, bad thing. You know, people, uh, like to think that the word ignorant is has a negative connotation to it, but it simply just means you don't know. You know, if someone asks me, hey, do you know how to, you know, do this electrical work? I, you know, if I say no, that I'm ignorant to it. You know, that's that's not a negative connotation to me. That's just I don't know about it. OK, um, so it's unfair, in my opinion, to judge people, you know, for not being aware of it when others, for example, grew up around that environment and are familiar with it. Okay, which which you have, and you're. I think one of the big differences that I found is is um, people. It, it maybe it's like anything else. People who are comfortable with guns or people who grew up around guns tend to be. Th that tends to be one of the main divides, I think, in in looking at the epistemology of of why people grow up pro gun or anti gun is is just how they were brought up around guns. Um, so, I, and I don't know what that means at all in the long run, other than um, if you're comfortable with them. I would say yeah. familiarity. Um, familiarity. To frame it in a different light, for example, if someone grows up working with cattle, you know, every day for, you know, from being six years old to, you know, 18, they grow around working around cattle, stuff that becomes standard, you know, general knowledge for their sphere of influence, so to speak, their family, their friends, is completely alien to someone who grew up, you know, working in a city. Right. So it's it's not necessarily that any you know one way of growing up is good or bad. It's just people have different experiences, and I feel that a uh, on a uh, legislative level, that disconnect between people who grew up in two different manners is a significant divide. Okay. So um, if if we can try and find the boundaries of your because you've already mentioned that you're you're okay in general with the thought of a regulatory. Um, 
or or proper regulatory oversight over over guns in America? Uh, that is correct, but okay. Go ahead. Uh, everything in moderation would be the yeah you know, okay. I, I would frame that. So what what would your if, if when we bring the Second Amendment into it? Um, do you have is do you have a, a general thought or position when people ask you about the Second Amendment? So um, I do. Um, however, um, certain parties would consider it uh, a bit of extremist. Um, I consider myself a start uh, staunch constitutionalist. Um, and that being said, I think we need to kind of frame a little bit of what the standard is across, you know, the states is the states are pretty much the ones that come with their own individual legislation due to firearms before we kind of dive into uh, further regulations. So uh, what I mean by that is, in the, for example, in the state of Arizona, um, gun shows, as people like to call them, you know, the best way I can describe it is a farmer's market for firearms, you know, and other sort of stuff. You know, that may, you know, kind of trip some people up, but there's still a regulatory body to it. Um Say you go to a gun store, right? When you go in there, you go to purchase your firearm, they do a background check, they ensure you're of age. And in order for that uh, business to sell firearms, they do their background checks through the FBI database and the state database. Um, now, that's you know that's not always 100% perfect. You know, different states have different laws and that sort of thing. I'm just speaking from a general tone. So as far as to answer your question about a regulatory body, um, Personally, I think that the system that exists um, has the proper bounds for it. it. However, it does not run efficiently enough. Um, for example, in some states, people who are guilty of domestic abuse can still buy firearms, which I'm personally against. Um, okay. so, so, but you're you're ultimately, if I'm hearing you right, you're ultimately saying that, that the state the state control should take should take precedence. Uh, yes. Um, however, there are some, for example, the uh, ATF, Alcohol, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms is the, the uh, big guru of uh, firearms regu- uh, regulation on a federal level. And the things that they sort of cover are minimal barrel links for, for rifles, minimal barrel links for shotguns, um, automatic weapons. And note, I'm referring to fully automatic, not semi-auto firearms are two different things. Right. Um and so the ATF essentially establishes a framework that, you know, is the standard. You know, for example, you cannot have a rifle barrel shorter than 16 inches or 14.5 with a pen muzzle device. You know, that sort of thing. And then state okay. laws can determine from there what, for example, in California, you have magazine restrictions. Okay. Um, so those are just kind of how those two different dynamics work together. Yeah, I guess um, – and again, so, so one of the things being on sort of the pro-gun control side that always irritates uh, pro-gun control people, and, and now we're trying to rebrand ourselves as gun safety people, but it's the exact same crowd. Um, we're just, we have a better label for it. Um, the, the, the gun safety crowd always gets told, you know, look at Chicago. Chicago is so terrible. You know, Chicago has the toughest gun laws in the world, uh, but they're, you know, the highest murder rate or whatever. But our, we have a fairly standard and I think valid r- argument to that, which is saying, look, uh, Indiana or whatever is like a half an hour away and it has much looser gun laws than Indiana does or, or Illinois does. Um, so people just like, if you want a gun and you're in Chicago, you just drive a half an hour and you go buy your gun that you want and you come back well, and you shoot somebody. I would like to state that uh, from a federal and state standpoint, you cannot buy a firearm without a uh, valid state ID. 
Um, the only exception for that is uh, military personnel, and they have to provide a copy of their their basically their order saying that they're stationed in that area and their military ID. So, um, unless they were to have a um, you know Indiana driver's license, um, that would not be a realistic and or possible. Right, but you have like if no matter where you live, you have friends that live a half an hour away. Right. When you're that close or when something I guess I guess I'm trying to say that. um, Go ahead. I I know what you're going with, and that's called a straw man purchase, and that's a felony. Okay, (laughs) but if I'm buying a gun to go shoot someone. (laughs) But but that's a that's a a dangerous argument, because then you go into the uh, dynamic of, you know, if they're going to commit a crime anyway, why is any legislation or lack therefore of going to prevent that? Okay, but I guess, but I guess the statistic that I want to come back to, and I and I don't have it at my fingertips, but of of the guns that are seized in Chicago, there it's some huge percentage, uh, and I don't know if it's above or below the the halfway line, uh, a, a significant percentage of the guns that are seized in Chicago from crimes being committed are out of state purchases. So, so, so I guess, and I guess what I'm saying is like, do we live in a world now where, um, and I, I know we're sort of, this is a ballooning into a bigger state's rights issue. Oh, no, thing. that's fine. That's fine. Um, you know, are, do we live in a world now where transportation is so easy and the internet is, has revolutionized everything that this concept of that there, there are some rights that, that don't do well in, in having artificially segmented borders you mean like the First uh, Amendment? Whew. Uh, I, I would say no to that, but, but the, the, I know where you're getting. I know where you're getting. Con- well, so, for example, the commentary, we're using the Internet, you know, which is a private entity. It is not a public entity. Uh, at least the United States is a private entity. And then you have people that use various social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, all that sort of stuff, which are private entities. And so... The owners of those private entities have a right to regulate what they have on there. Is that not correct? That, that is correct. The communist in me says we should nationalize uh, that since we pretty much paid for it. Well, but I'm just going to poke fun at you. I've been to a communist country. It's not as fun as it points out to be. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's off topic. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, a real, like a currently communist country or what it used to be communist? Because the they, they used to, uh, then their entire economy and infrastructure collapsed. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. Ask, ask Hugo Chavez how nationalizing things goes. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I get it, but I think that's a that, that's a little bit of a, a slightly different. You're yeah, talking about I, I, I kind of jumped off topic there. My bad on that. No, it's not. It's not a bad thing, but I think I don't know. Um, I guess when you were t- because at the end of the day, what we're going to do is uh, on the left here, we're, we're going to say this is about public safety and, and public safety concerns need to sort of maybe transcend uh, some some states rights issues that that life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So thing. you and just to, for me to clarify, you're in the opinion that the uh, rights of the majority trump the rights of the majority. I'm not I'm not saying that per se. I'm, I'm saying I, I I'm saying specifically into the concept that uh, one state can have a federal you that you can f- cross sort of a quote unquote arbitrary border drive five miles and have be subject to a completely different set of laws for your purchase and then drive back another five minutes and use that same purchase. Um, well, so um, 
just as, I'll sort of elaborate this in a little bit of a different manner. Um, so like, for example, with Colorado, uh, legalizing marijuana, right? Right. Great. Fine for them. Fantastic. You know, they legalized it, but you know, similar to what the issue you're bringing up, people can order out of state, you know, uh, THC, I think it is oil or something like that, basically cannabis oil, you know, yeah. out of state to their resident state. Um, right. which I think is sort of similar to the issue you're covering here with people, uh, driving from Illinois to a different state to purchase firearms. Um, you will always have a legality aspect. Um, for example, I mentioned straw man purchases, which to explain that for people who aren't familiar is, uh, for example, if I had a felony and you did not, and I said, Hey, will you go buy this firearm for me and I'll pay you when you get it? That would be considered a straw man purchase. Cause I am legally not allowed to buy a firearm in that hypothetical situation. Right. Um, but- my guess is, though, that those are hard to prosecute. Do we do we know the numbers of prosecutions um, for straw man purchases? The the issue with straw man purchases is the the heart. It's not something that's really tangible to gauge because of, for example, family. Right? If a family member were to buy a firearm for someone who was about to turn eighteen, would that be considered a straw man purchase? Right. Legally speaking, yes, but no one's no one in any state is going to prosecute that, right? Um, so I personally do not have the statistics on hand. Uh, however, uh, based on general information, I would I would think that something like that would be extremely difficult to prosecute. Okay. Um, so your numbers would not be reflective of the amount that is actually occurring. But, but doesn't and I think we came close to talking about it. Doesn't that sort of blend into this concept that? the the laws um that are there are are there to dissuade people who are respectful of the laws and that people who just don't care just don't care i would say that's an accurate statement okay okay um so so let's um let's <laughs> let's shelve chicago and uh indiana for a bit and and talk about um the uh the the semi-auto versus uh full auto discussion and and again i feel um dumb for having to say this but i will say it yet again the ar-15 is not an assault rifle an assault one of the definitions of an assault rifle is the ability to go full automatic which means you have one trigger pull and multiple rounds released Uh, a semi-automatic uh is a single bullet per trigger pull and that is what uh, the vast majority of rifles in our nation are now, except for, say, bolt action or, or other uh, types. That would be an accurate statement. Just to uh, clarify a little bit, though, okay. uh, the term, and this is going to be a history nerd moment, so forgive me. No, no, uh, we love history nerd moments. The, the term assault rifle is was born out of a mistranslation on the uh, German Stungewehr 1944, which is the first uh, widely produced select fire rifle. Um, and so the assault rifle, you will, for example, in military manuals and doctrine, you will never, ever see the term assault rifle ever. Okay. What, are the, what is the military? Uh, call it it is what? a service rifle. You know, the, okay. for example, you know, all, for example, in the military, my M4 carbine had select fire, meaning it could fire semi-automatic or fully automatic. Do you okay. know how many times I fired an automatic with that? Yeah. Never, never. Yeah. Uh, from a professional standpoint, you will never use fully automatic, you know, people in the civilian context, uh, let me clarify my last statement. For a service rifle, you will never use full automatic. With a machine gun, obviously, you will. But uh, back to what I was saying. From a civilian standpoint, um, 
it's nothing more than it's just fun to have. You know, there isn't really any purpose for it. Professional, you know, like SWAT teams, private security, private, you know, contractors, they don't use automatic in a professional service rifle role. Right. So, and people. My my understanding is that the newer service rifles have like a three, a three shot burst mode. And that uh, tends to be what's commonly used or no? uh, No, sir. Um, For example, so. Again, getting into some firearms history here in the 19, probably about after the 1960s. So between the 70s and the 80s, you saw a lot of burst fire function. But on the newest iteration of uh, most, I won't say all uh, infantry service rifles, you have semi-automatic or full auto. There is no burst fire function. Okay, okay, and and you would say the the default, like 90, I guess what you're saying, 99 percent to 100 percent of all the service people out there. Unless they know that they're going to be in some sort of suppressive capacity, it's it's set to semi-auto mode. That would be correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so so just to clarify that, so so um, do do you do you advocate that that full automatic sales should be allowed in, so, in America? Uh, let's add some context to that. So I, I think a lot of the misconception is people don't realize how heavily regulated automatic firearms are. Um, for example, per the ATF, and I can't remember this specific act, um, but if I remember correctly, you cannot purchase anything newer than 1984. So it was manufactured right. after 1984. It cannot be purchased. In order for okay. you to purchase something before 1984, you have to register with the ATF, uh, both your person and the firearm you wish to purchase. You get a huge background check, like fine tooth comb over everything. Right. And it is incredibly cost prohibitive. For example, to, uh, uh, buy a fully automatic version of an AR-15, it's almost $100,000. Okay. Um, so between the licensing fees and how cost prohibitive it is, there are very, very, very few people who actually own, you know, full, full. fully automatic firearms. Um, right. Yes, there are people who illegally modify stuff out there, which is a felony, um, and you'll go to prison for a very long time, so I can't recommend doing that, but... Um, the legit full auto stuff is incredibly rare. But, but there's a percentage of people who don't believe that restriction should be in place. Um, I would say you're going to have a percentage of people who believe anything. However, um, getting into sort of my personal opinion on it with how expensive that sort of thing is, the people who complain about it and not needing legislation on it are the ones who legally own stuff like that and they can afford it. Uh, generally okay. speaking, I'd say no one else cares. <laughs> okay. Um, t- I guess for me, and, and part of my discovery was understanding the different groups that, that fall under the pro, uh, pro gun rights. I think, I think I hear that mostly from the libertarian perspective that just want, you know, no, no control over anything unless, you know, I don't well, know, unless. Anything. I would say you have radicals in every group. So, you know, if someone just says left wing, you know, they're folding in Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist, communist. They're folding them all into one bunch, but they are very radically different groups. So okay. Okay. Uh, I'd say it's unfair to consider, you know, your extremist libertarians um, representative of the majority of the group. So, so let's run let's run through some other um, public legislation that's that's come out. Um, I think you mentioned uh, one in your uh, in your opening statement, but, um, so, so there was, uh, yeah, the, there was legislation against bump stocks or there had been proposed legislation against bump stocks. Uh, where were you on that? Yes. Yeah, so the reason that bump stocks have gained a, uh, 
you know, massive attention, which because of the uh, Las Vegas shooting. Right. Um, and, you know, and this is going to piss a lot of people off, so you have to forgive me. But from a purely military standpoint, um, the guy, the the shithead, I guess I hope you don't mind. Sorry about the profanity on your no, podcast. But, I think I think if you're um, talking about the guy you're talking about, I think it's appropriate. Um, if and again, hypothetically speaking, if I were to try and do something or if any military for military serviceman were try to do something similar, that's exactly how they would have done it. You know, he so the whole situation of having clean lines of sight, densely packed area, you know, elevated position, the right. casualties would have been the same regardless of whether or not he hit a bump stock. OK. Um, and so, in my opinion, criminalizing what is essentially for fun equipment is what it is. Or, or, you know, demonizing a piece of equipment is not addressing the situation that was at hand where this individual had, you know, a significant amount of ammunition, a significant amount, you know, he had clean lines of fire, had multiple positions that he could fire from into a crowded area with no cover, you know, and in, as, you know, uh, unsensitive as it sounds, um, you had a perfect storm, so to speak, of what you do in a textbook ambush. Right. But he like he felt that the bump stocks gave him an advantage. Um, so there were there were two systems that were used in the uh, Las Vegas shooting. You had uh, bump stocks and you had hand cranks. Right. Both obtain a similar uh, rate of fire, depending on the, uh, the users. A hand crank is basically like your your old school Gatling guns that have a hand crank on them. Right. Uh, it fits into the trigger well of uh, your, you know, your standard uh, AR style platform. Um, so you can obtain similar rates of fire with them. So, you know, potato, potato, you know, it would have accomplished the same thing. He may have felt that it gave him a distinct advantage. But at the end of the day, if he was just firing a uh, standard semi-automatic firearm and just cranking that trigger, it would have accomplished the same result. OK. OK. Um. Yeah, I've seen and I, I went on YouTube uh, and I've and I've watched various videos and uh, it, it just it gets a little blurry for me. I think I think one of these days I actually have to go out onto a range, uh, you know, with with a rifle and, and just try and go semi-auto as fast as I can and uh, bump stock as fast as I can and and, and just see for myself because it's uh, it's it's a little bit hard to, to fully understand it, I think, without being sort of hands-on um from a layman's perspective it sure seems like it makes it very easy to shoot a lot of bullets really quickly and, and that would be a, a true statement um to sort of uh clarify a little bit from what i mentioned before a a bump stock or hand crank will have a significantly higher rate of fire than someone firing on speed automatic however that being said if you're just banging away on the trigger with no regards for accuracy as this individual was um you would not obviously be able to fire as quickly as some of a bump stock or a hand crank. However, you would still be able to obtain, you know, similar uh, results because, you know, five seconds and four and two and a half seconds makes very little difference when you have an elevated position with long lines of sight. So you're, you're saying the inaccuracy caused by the bump stock would negate that rate of fire. Uh, no, sir. Um, to, to word it a little bit differently, um, so while the bump stocks do have a higher cyclic rate, meaning they fire faster than a traditional semi-auto with someone just pulling the trigger as fast as possible, right? due to the particular situation where it was a very densely populated area, you know, where basically you could throw a rock and hit somebody anywhere you throw it, 
the the time difference, and I'm just pulling you know random numbers here as an example. So you have you know 10 seconds to fire on semi-auto, but four and a half on you know a, a bump stock. That six second difference between the two would not matter enough to cause any significant difference in casualties suffered. Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. So uh, it takes me, and I'm just gonna, it takes me 10 seconds to empty the magazine on with a, my finger, whereas it takes six seconds to, to empty it with the bump stock. And and over the time and the setup and changing the magazines out or whatever, that difference isn't isn't that. Uh, in, in that particular situation, that is correct. Okay. Okay. Um, there was another piece of legislation that, that said um, if if you had uh, mental health issues to the to the length of which that the government um, took away your ability to manage your own money and put you in a guardianship, uh, that you would not be able to to own a firearm. Um, what what would your stance on on something like that be? So being a uh, prior military background, I have a lot of uh, friends and family who have suffered uh, sniffly from PTSD and several of which um, throughout their lifespans had moments in time where they were uh, required to be in a facility in order to treat that. Now, under such proposed legislation, I can see the issue where even though, you know, 15 years later, they're healthy, they're better, you know, everything's great. They're still not able to, you know, have their constitutional rights because of something that happened 15 years ago. Uh, now, obviously, I know that's a, a choice um, response to a, a very broad question. Um, however, I think there would have to be very, very specific statutes of limitations, very specific guidelines, um, because some of the more significant concerns that you see is while making it more restrictive for people with mental health is fine. Um, for example, in the instance of the Parkland shooting, um, you know, the kid was obviously fucked up in the head. Um, right. But there were different failures at hand than simply um, there were there were law enforcement failures at hand who were being told multiple times. The school had been told multiple times, hey, this kid's going to do something crazy, but nothing was done. So uh, rather than trying to isolate the uh, cause to a single issue, um, looking at it more broad, for example, in the uh, San Bernardino shooting, uh, that was extremism. Right. Uh, that was, um, you know, terrorism for lack of better terms. And right. um, the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting, you know, that was an act of terrorism, um, which people uh, are had. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I won't, I, I don't want to debate, debate. I don't know enough about that debate. My gut was that he was a mentally unbalanced person who just sort of uh, pulled the, the terrorism. Well, I'd also say that anyone who's willing to blow themselves up in a crowd of people, generally speaking, is mentally unbalanced. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, wow. uh, yeah, and, but that's kind of yeah. getting off topic. Um, so I apologize for that. No, no, it's it's okay. So so I, I, I get like it's the, the concept is there, but um, there's some caveats. Um, and then the last one I think is is about restricting gun ownership for people who are on the no fly list. Uh, so you can't you can't get on an airplane in this country, but you can go buy a gun. That is a very dangerous uh, opinion because a no-fly list is established based upon the whims of whichever legislative body decides it. Um, it is not a fixed list. You know, there isn't a set. You know, if you're from this communist country or this dictatorship, you know, whatever or another, 
it is not a fixed list. It is constantly changing. Right. And so, for example, you know, you have, you know, a doctor from, say, Syria who is now has his constitutional rights restricted. He, you know, he's American citizen, you know, whole nine yards, everything because a no fly list changed. And depending on how the law is worded, he may not be able to buy firearms at all or the ones he already owns would be considered a felony. Right. And that, so that sort of depends on the wording of the law itself, but that's sort of one of the issues that comes at hand with that. So I'm, I'm, I'm tending, it's, it's weird. I'm finding myself agreeing with you on this, but you see from the left's perspective, when we hear about these things in blanket, uh, people on no flight, you can get on plane, but you can go buy a gun. You can, you can be declared mentally incompetent, but you can go buy a gun. Um, you know, I think, I think that's when you start getting into the emotional side of things, because some of these things, uh, on the surface, um, they're easy to kind of go, what, you know, well, in, in a nutshell, what you're doing, and I'm not, obviously not you specifically, but in general, you are sacrificing the rights, of the many for the safety of the few or because of the few better way to put it. Um, and you know, and this is going to be me speaking from a, a personal standpoint or a politicalized standpoint, but that really strikes a chord with me. Okay. Um, now to sort of like hop around to the, uh, the numbers game of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to post a link for the, uh, 2016, uh, FBI, uh, crime in the U S statistics, which is essentially a, a breakdown of all basically all the murder crime in the United States in 2016, broken up, you know, by year from back to 2012 by what well, is a firearm, knife, blunt object, that sort of thing. Uh, that's right. going to be I've the got that right now. Yeah. And I'm going to be, uh, referencing that in my next little, uh, tangent. So, and, and now we're getting, so now we're getting into the argument of do the benefits of restricting gun rights outweigh the cons? What are the benefits and do those benefits outweigh the cons to the people being impacted? Well, and this is partially to address that. This is going to specifically look at rifles for this specific link and whether or not they really matter. Okay. Um, so if you please let me know when you have that, uh, I've got it. Yep. Okay. So if you look at the, uh, your 2016 column, you have your breakdown for total, total firearms, handguns, rifles, shotguns, et cetera. Right. Um, as you can see the disparity between, uh, handgun related murders and rifle rated murder murders are very significant. Sure. Right. You know, and that's not a small margin of error. Uh, and one uh, qualifier I'd like to add to this is, uh, murder victims. And this is referring to, uh, both people killed in a justifiable homicide, such as a home defense situation, and you know being robbed and shot in the street type of thing. So there is no separation between that. Okay, and just and just for the public out there, the the numbers are uh, the handgun murders were a little over uh, seven thousand one hundred, uh, and then the rifle murders, which uh, would include the AR fifteen and uh, variants, were three hundred and seventy four. So. Uh, uh, 20 times 20 to one factor roughly, uh, between the two. And to sort of continue on that, you know, and people from both sides like to make a bigger deal about what is effectively a tool. Uh, for example, um, capability wise, there's zero difference between an AR 15 style rifle and a Ruger mini 14. They have similar capacity, they have similar cyclic rate, similar accuracy. 
but the only the only reason one gets a huge you know you know fear mongering about it is because one's black and scary. So, so I want to talk about that, uh, and and again because you're military, yeah, I, I'd like to I'd like to get into that a little bit more. Um, I I have issues with the the black and scary uh, um, response, and and you can I'll I'll just start blathering, and and you can tell me when I'm going crazy. But the, the AR-15 is is a closely at least at least sort of the default configuration. I've since learned how it's almost Lego like and it's its ability to be modified. Uh, adult Legos. Uh, adult very, very adult kids. No, not at home. Um, but uh, the that that rifle and the design of that rifle and and the functionality of that rifle is the result of some, you know, whatever 40, 50 years of service rifle uh evolution right i think i think there are reasons and i can i could not tell you those reasons but i think there are the reasons why the um you know the stock is the way it is and the receiver is the way it is and the magazines are the way they are and the sites are the way they are that that our frontline service members carry and i think i think all those reasons tend to boil down into what is an efficient killing machine and and I think there are components. They're not just aesthetic, cosmetic components. They they're I think they're functional changes that have been made. And I think there's a reason that our service members don't carry something that looks like the Mini 14 around because it's it's not as efficient to its singular purpose. Well, uh, to address that, what I'd like to point out is the uh, the Mini 14 and the uh, M14 rifle are physically speaking identical and the m14 was carried for uh, some time before the adoption of the m16 right which um, was 40 40 years ago right? uh, more than that uh 1965 okay. if i remember correctly for the uh, the m16 being right. adopted right uh, so, so I get, i'm going I, yeah, for your personal use uh, i'm dropping a link to use this reference um just for general knowledge so i can have something for you to reference while speaking yeah. Um, so the picture that I provided is, um, you know, an AR-15 that has been built to, with some fluctuation, essentially be identical to your standard US M4, right? Minus the select fire capability, right? Now, looking at that, you know, there's nothing especially fancy on that rifle, right? It is all compliant with all regulation. <laughs> it's black and scary, man. But the point I would make is compared to a Ruger Mini 14, which if you're not familiar with that uh, firearm, I can provide a link to show. But if you are, I won't bother. No, no, I have an Um, image up. And and to me for and for the listeners, the the Mini 14 looks like a standard sort of hunting rifle to me a little bit, maybe a little bit more. But it it looks like something you would take to go hunting. um, All firearms have nearly identical cyclic rates because they're both semi-automatic. Right. Both had the exact same barrel length. All right. The on the particular rifle I show used 14.5 with a pin muzzle device. Most M14s sit at about 16 inches total length. All right. So slightly longer. Both have a 30 round magazine firing 5.56 and use identical right. magazines. And both achieve uh, similar muzzle velocity, which matters for how bullets react and when they hit tissue. So. Yeah. Functionally speaking, what's the difference between the two? 
because I think so then so my 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 response to that would be I I don't know but I'm guessing the army thinks that there's a reason there's a reason they switched from the uh, uh, M well, M4 or or the M14 to the M4 well so the the for some history time the re, the army the military in the 60s switched to what is called an intermediate cartridge so 556 five, considered an intermediate cartridge so smaller round than your standard, you know, full-size rifle round. Right. Um, at that time, the Mini-14 hadn't been built yet. It didn't exist. Okay. And so you had, you know, your M14 rifle, which is chambered in a full-size round, you know, very, very big, very heavy, right? And the rifle itself was very heavy. And then you had this competition of a lighter weight rifle using polymer firing an intermediate round that from military perspective, it was lighter weight. You could carry more ammo. You know, long right. story short, just a better rifle. And but, so, but wait, that that long story short, better rifle. That that's where we start getting into the crux of the issue. I think um, there, there's a reason the military rifle looks like it does, and that's for efficiency on the battlefield. Uh, I would say that's uh, tr- both true and false. Um, okay. And I know that's sure. sort of that's paradoxical, <laughs> but. Um, to elaborate, the vast majority of innovation that you see in the world is done by, by done by the civilian world, not the military, right? Okay, is that a, a point we can agree on? Uh, <laughs> je, je, in a generalization standpoint, yeah, or civilian with military funding, sure, yes, hundred percent. So military funds a ton of research. They do, they do. But yes, However, I would agree. In a, in Advance, a, advancements yes. that you see, for example, Eugene Stoner, when he was designing the M16, which the modern derivative would be the AR-15, which is an entirely different rifle, um, was not designing it for the military to use. He was designing it as a pet project to begin with and then happened to get federal funding. Right. You know, and so significant advancement that you see, at least in, well, yes, firearms research especially is typically driven by military law enforcement, you know, intentions. The rifle itself was intended for civilian use. And, you know, jumping into it, you, you're just to sort of, you know, add some context. When you're looking at a gunfight, right, no matter how, you know, how awesome your equipment may be, you know, you could have the most, you know, Gucci night vision, you know, all good equipment as you want. But it really doesn't matter in the scale of things. For, I guess, for example, in Vietnam, all right, the, the North Vietnamese Army were primarily using uh, AK rifles and uh, SKSs, which are cinematic 10-round magazine, you know, rifles. Right. On a strategic level, which is what the, the military thinks in, what individual service rifle someone has really doesn't matter. And so uh, any sort, okay. I guess the better way to put it, any sort of tactical edge that a rifle may have is not going to give someone an advantage over someone who has better training. Um, that's a hard leap for me. I would, I would assume that the accessorization of the rifle would, would level the playing field a bit more. Well, that, that uh, it would let the novice be better at it. Uh, for example, well, and that's, a very significant thing about the uh, AR platform is it is very, very simple to learn. It is a very easy rifle to learn on, you know, that for example, in, uh, 
in classes that um you know I used to go to that had a lot of women at them, you know, they would learn on an AR style rifle because it was much easier for a new person who wasn't used to firearms to learn on. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. And does that is that in part because it, for the military it was meant to be something that, you know, you get through basic and you you just you have to pick it up quickly. Was that a, a feature benefit or did that just sort um, of happen that it, is, it just sort of happened that way. As far as uh, firearms are concerned, like and framing this in 1960, all right, right. Um, the, the AR-15 as it began, as it was first produced by Armalite and then later became the M-16 when Eugene Stoner built it, um, was designed for a professional army, right? There's a lot of small parts in it. The bolt carrier, if you take it apart, you can lose stuff really easily, you know, little bitty parts, that sort of thing. So it's not something that people would traditionally think of as, you know, a normal fighting rifle, you know, that's rugged, you know, super durable, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, let's reference that picture I sent you. And for people listening, it's a, a an AR-15 style rifle. Yeah. Um, you know, the main things we see on there are a flashlight on that left rail, a forward grip and an optic, you know, red dot sight. Yeah. How are any of those giving, going to give an individual a uh, outstanding edge over someone? Well, I don't. I don't know that it's about outstanding edge, and I guess this goes back to just degrees of separation. But to me, and and again, this is this is layman, and and it may well be ignorant. But in my head, if I was tasked with going out and killing as many people as possible, I'd be picking up the AR-15 and not the Mini-14. And I know, I know that you can say, uh, you know, that the, the, the guts are all basically the same, but I, I think there's a reason that, that the military and over years of evolution, guns evolve just like everything else. The, the, the one on the, my right, sorry, that the, the AR-15 looks the way it does is, is because this is the more efficient design for the purpose for which it is built. This so is, I, I guess, um, you break up a valid point. All right. And what I'd like to prop in this, um, I would address this as part of a uh, sensationalism. So, okay. um, the, uh, people have become so sensationalized one way or another, you know, extreme, you know, for extreme against groups, you know, based on media, social media, that sort of thing that, that particular rifle platform has become iconic with different messages for different sides of the, you know, the fence. And, and also, so, I think, to be fair, Ben, I think that's because it seems to be disproportionately used in mass shootings, whether it's recursive, you know, they hear about the AR-15, so they go use the AR-15 or, or for whatever, but wouldn't, uh, am I, am I right in saying that it does disproportionately appear in mass shootings? Well, and I don't mean to sound nitpicky, but you very much have to qualify what is exactly a mass shooting. For example, in Columbine, which is the you know the staple mass shooting that everyone refers to, it a horrible tragedy. Right. Never had an AR-15 or a Ruger Mini-14. They were using machine pistols and shotguns. Right. You know, okay. and uh, and you know, and I was sort of like an, an off-topic sort of thing, but you have to sort of when people refer to mass shooting, all right, you, there's multiple things that, so part of it is going to be the popularity of the AR-15 within the United States. And it is an extremely popular firearm. Uh, it is essentially to the rifle world, the Glock, the, the Glock, so to speak of the rifle world, you know, I'm, right. you don't have to be a huge gun guru to know that Glocks are incredibly popular in the handgun world. 
Right. Um, it's extremely well, why, versatile. And, and why, I mean, why, ben? why, why is that? Do you think? Uh, why is the rifle itself popular? Why is the, uh, the handgun popular? Yeah. No. Why, why is the AR-15, uh, that so model? For so a, and I'm going to say AR-15 platform. And to that, I'm referring to various styles and various producers Understood. Um, for a relatively low price point and obviously not cheap, but for about $800 ish, um, you know, plus or minus, you know, a hundred depending on which way you go, you get a very reliable, very accurate, um, and semi-automatic rifle. And most importantly, uh, has a massive aftermarket. So for example, I, you know, in that referencing that picture I'd linked initially, um, I can make that look entirely different in three or four days, depending on shipping. You know, I can right. change out every, every single component on that rifle. Right. Because the aftermarket exists, you know, it's like, uh, the aftermarket for the rice burner, you know, Toyota's Toyota's and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, when, right. it, when people are making drifting cars and shit like that. Right. Well, it, helps it, after- it was built to be extremely modular, right? It was, um, that was part of the, and not burner. initially, uh, okay. it sort of became that one more link for you to, this is going to kind of jump topics a little bit, but sort of to address, uh, and it's going to sound you know, like a layman's way of putting it, but whether or not it actually even matters, you know, whether the air okay. 15 is scary or not. So, can, can, uh, we, can I get you to admit something too? Just, uh, and, it depends and on maybe, what it is. <laughs> but, uh, uh, part of the reason that the AR-15 is, is, is so popular is because it looks cool. Like oh, for yeah, the same fuck reason, yeah. Fuck yeah. Between modern the liberals are blowing up about it. Well, yeah. You know, and, you know, and I'll, you know, I'll be the first one to say, you know, I, I grew up, you know, playing modern warfare and, you know, those type of games. Right. So, you know, you, you always got the badass hero guy rocking an M4 with fucking grenade launcher on it, kicking ass and shit. So, right. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I just wanted to clear that up. All right. So this link is going to be uh, from the national Institute of justice. Um, and there are uh, different research points embedded within if you wish to investigate it further. Uh, but what that essentially is, is non-fatal firearm violence between 1993 and 2011. And the way it is broken down is by firearms incidents, the victims per incident, so to speak, and then the overall crime rate um, associated with that. Right. And if I'm reading this right, they all seem the numbers seem to be dropping precipitously from a high of uh, like an an overall rating high of 7.4 back in 94 down to the uh, near bottom current. I guess, or the last year of 2011 being 1.8. Correct. So significantly down. So, and so part of the question that raises, and I'm not going to try and make an assertion based on, you know, data, because that's not what the purpose of the data is. But the question people have to ask is what sort of legislation action happened that would change that and what sort of, what changed the bottom line? Um, For example, in 2001, uh, Bill Clinton's assault weapons ban expired, uh, which okay. basically banned certain firearms based on aesthetic properties, not any actual capability. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I know that sounds like uh, a lame way of putting it, but that's pretty factually speaking what it was. Okay. Um, and that ended in 2001. So if you look between, you know, your 2000 and 2001, your firearms instance skyrocket, you know, by 80,000 for those listening. Okay. Um, but the amount of uh, 
let's see, where was I at? 2000, 2001. Yeah, it skyrockets. The victims dropped. Yeah, but the victims dropped. So is that associated with people are buying new toys they couldn't have before and are having whoopsie moments or what happened? You know, so and again, I'm not going to try and draw an assertion from data because that's for other people to make their own opinion on. Um, but it's just an interesting thing to look at, you know, so are firearms really the problem? You know, so what are you saying? Like, what do you, I, well, I would, I guess I would like you to draw some sort of assertion, like help me understand what, um, so you're feeling between 1993 and two, in 2011, you have, uh, basically a drop by three times the amount of firearms instances, you know, per year. Right. And you had a significant drop, you know, every year. So, and then you also had a decrease in the firearm crime rate by a significant amount uh, for those listening about uh, 5% roughly. So okay. that being said, is one individual rifle really the problem, especially when we reference uh, that FBI statistic talking about how handguns are the majority of, you know, majority of crimes committed with handguns, not rifles. So, so you're saying, so, so to summarize sort of, you're, you're saying that, that over the last uh, 25 years that we're, we're seeing a, a steady gradual decline of the use of firearms in crimes and a number, a, a, a commensurate decreasing percentage of people victimized by guns. That's correct. And uh, one thing I would also like to bring, uh, bring up, uh, using a firearm to defend yourself does not inherently mean that you shoot someone. Okay. Um, for example, you know, hypothetically speaking, if someone's in your home and you pull a weapon on them and they're unarmed, 99% of the time, they're either going to run or, you know, ask, ask cheeks clenched or they're going to throw their hands up and sit still. Okay. 99% of the time. And one of the misleading things about statistics, you know, is, you know, we sort of mentioned a little bit earlier in this, you know, about how statistics don't lie, but statisticians do, um, is, yeah, those sort of situations are not accounted for in FBI or CDC statistics because there was no casualty associated with it. The, the brandishing. Uh, correct. Okay. And so, okay. so, so the layman, one of the layman things, and just because I'm argumentative and I, I really don't know, but, but the, one of my layman responses would be, my guess is that this, this chart you're showing me that has a, that downward uh, angle is is in direct correlation or inverse correlation to uh, our prison population that that we sort of expanded on this um, you know criminalization and and uh, locking people up and mandatory minimums uh, that that started around the same time and and the reason the crime numbers are going down is because we putting a heck of a lot more people in jail. Is there, is there any validity to that argument? Do you, do you buy any of that or do you um, attribute different factors? To, to quickly clarify, my law enforcement experience was in a different country. So I'm approaching this from more of a civilian standpoint, just drawing my own assessment on it, just to clarify right. that initially. Um, right. But I would say they may have some shared, you know, cause and effect, but I don't think it would be significant enough to, uh, have quite the drop that we're looking at in this particular chart. Um, so, so what do you attribute this to? Is it just, just generally we're becoming a safer society or, or what um, do you? So that, that's sort of uh, difficult um, because, you know, people would like to argue that crime is because of poverty and low education is what people like to argue. So okay. you could make the argument that because people have become more educated in the last 25 years, crime has gone down, but you know, then you can counter argument and say, well, you know, people are just paranoid to use firearms now. 
you know, because of the stigma associated with them. So I would not say that there's any, you know, one hat fits all answer to this. Um, I just thought it was more of an interesting um, stat standpoint to look at and sort of draw your own conclusion based off of. Right. So you're, you're trying to say the hype doesn't fit the stats. Uh, correct. Then, okay. All right. That makes, uh, that makes sense. Uh, for example, um, you know, everyone likes to, you know, because mass shootings are a horrible tragedy, right? I'm not trying to dissuade that at all. However, when you look at overall numerical values, those are a drop in the bucket in terms of, you know, overall numbers. Right. And so while, yes, they are a tragedy, you know, when you are looking at a minor, a very, very small minority of incidents in the terms of the, you know, the U S is what 360 million people. Right. So if you're looking at one individual that is hurting several individuals or in the case, dozens of individuals out of 360 million people, that makes it difficult to create legislation for. And I, 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 I get that. And I think, um, you know, I think, I think if it just, it just doesn't, the, the, that sort of inability or that sort of, um, futility doesn't sit well with people who want to do something. And, and yeah, I think there'll always be a percentage of the people that want to do something, whether it really helps or doesn't. But I think they're, they're, they are still outweighed by the people who actually want to do something tangible that really does help the situation. And I think there, there is like, whether we like it or not, our, our legislation is driven in large part by emotion. Like there, there are emotional components. Uh, things can get passed or not passed based on how people feel about the subject. Um, and, and I think the school shootings and dead kids uh, is, has, has finally gotten to us to the place where people feel like we want to do something. And on the, the left, we're very frustrated because it seems like anytime we want to talk about making any sort of changes, uh, the, the, it's just a complete wall. It's like a complete barrier of, of nope, we're not even going to talk to you about that. Well, and I would say uh, both sides are guilty of this. For example, the right especially is very guilty of uh, wanting to defund Planned Parenthood solely because of abortions, but they completely discount that it is a lot for women's health, you know, uh, paternity checks, that sort of thing. And so I would say that same misinformation exists on your left side of the scale in regards to firearms. And because of that, you reach an impasse like you do in Planned Parenthood type organizations. You reach an impasse where neither people want to budge because they both think they're right. Um, yeah, but I, I think I think the people listening to this are going to freak out and say the Planned Parenthood example is about people saving lives, and the gun control example is about people killing other people. Well, so, and you'll have to forgive me for a moment while I address the people who have those complaints very quickly. Yeah, um, when you're talking about violating a person's individual freedom to choose, I am 100% pro Planned Parenthood. You can believe what you want. You can make the argument about uh, how it's you know about saving lives versus taking lives, but what you don't comprehend is that for, for example, I'm not an especially big guy, right? I'm six foot one, you know, 225, right? Not a okay. huge guy, but if there is, for example, a female or a male, that's about five, one, 110 pounds. If I wanted to do something nefarious and they're not armed, there's not a whole lot they can do to stop me. Right. And you know, everyone likes to, you know, the, especially your NRA types, they go, Oh, well, you know, carry a carry, you know, everyone should carry a firearm or stupid shit like that. No. Trained people should carry firearms, but it's your responsibility as a citizen to train if you choose to carry one. But 
what that does, though, is so while Planned Parenthood does save lives, you know, by giving people access to that sort of health resources they need, my argument would be is that firearms prevent your, you know, your single mother with an abusive boyfriend is, you know, five foot one, 110 pounds to defend herself, you know, from her significantly larger counterpart. hundred percent. So let's let's talk about home defense, right, if, if we can for a minute. Um, so, again, my, my perspective that I felt was moderate was a possession of a shotgun or a handgun or, you know, a, a quote unquote rifle like the uh, the mini 14 is is perfectly fine for home defense um but but there's others that say no you you need to be armed to whatever possible level uh, that your attacker may be um and i i struggle with that i don't um like like you mentioned earlier my my guess is the vast majority of burglaries are not when the people are home and then of that small percentage the percentage where you shoot a, a round in their direction or yell, I have a gun, uh, and they s- decide to stick around and have a shootout with you is, is a much more minute fraction than that. Uh, um, from a from a sheer statistics standpoint, you are correct, right? You, uh-huh. For the vast majority of burglaries, it is done when no one's home or the whenever the, uh, the uh, perpetrator will enter the room and find someone there, they will take off. However, the way you have to look at it, is that a risk you're going to take? Well, no, it's, I guess it's, and, and so I guess my response to that is no, I guess the, is, is the uh, accommodating the protection from that risk to that percentage of people who would be impacted by it, does that outweigh the threat to public safety for the larger number of Americans? Well, and I would say in reference to, uh, the, uh, that data I brought forth about you know overall gun violence from the uh, National Institute of Justice, uh, I would say that very clearly states uh, no that it does not impact public safety. In fact, it does the opposite. Um, now that's sort of like drawing you know <laughs> you know I said I wasn't going to do it I went and did it anyway but drawing a conclusion from you know obscure data. But um, what I think people like to think is people like to assume that everyone means them well and that's fine and dandy you know people can believe that you know 100 percent. i you know no issues with that but people also need to have a realistic view of the world um and i find that to be more common especially with students uh people who haven't traveled to third world countries for example um there are places for example in somalia where people just do not mean you well Right. You know, and yes, obviously there's good people in every country. Right? I'm not saying everyone in Somalia is a bad guy, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, especially, you know, as Americans, if we go to Somalia, Saudi Arabia, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, generally speaking, people there do not mean you especially well. <laughs> right. Um, now, part of that is because, you know, fringe radical groups within those countries have made, you know, very negative connotations and that sort of thing. But... The bottom line is if someone breaks into my home to, say, steal stuff, right? They may be unarmed, but I don't know that. I just know that someone's, you know, rooting through my, uh, you know, my kitchen or my desk, you know, trying to find stuff in my house in the dark, right? I know that I have my kids in the other room. Right. Right. So do I want to take that risk? No, but but do you do you have an issue with someone telling you that you're limited to a pistol and a shotgun? Uh, absolutely, because that's born out of a uneducation. So we're going to get into some ballistics talk here, but um, 
in terms again, of that so, percentage that well, you should. Yes. So uh, we'll reference two things here. So the FBI uh, did a statistical evaluation that um, most uh, confrontations involving firearms involve fewer than five shots and are inside of 21 feet or seven yards. All right. But what people ignore, and this is getting into like a uh, an individual, like a ballistic standpoint, but uh, double out buck, number four buckshot, and slugs will punch through far more drywall than a five five six round will. Okay. A nine millimeter round from a handgun, you know, three fifty seven, forty four magnum, you know, forty five, they will punch through more drywall than a five five six round. Okay. Which I feel like people ignore not because they are selectively choosing to ignore it because they're ignorant to the ballistics are associated with it. Okay. Um, and so I have to, so I'll just, I'll relay something anecdotal and maybe they were misinformed, but one of, one of my uh, family members in laws that, that is in law enforcement. Um, so the, they have two, two weapons in their trunk. They have a shotgun uh, and they have a, a, a rifle. Um, and they say when when they go out on a domestic disturbance or another sort of some sort of call that requires them to, to go in armed, that that if they're in any sort of populated area, they'll take the shotgun because they're afraid of um, background uh, or, or or the rifle bullet. And are you saying that that's that's incorrect that they? Well- so I'm not going to speak to uh, your family members' department policies. I'm not going to call them a liar because I don't know the situation. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, what I will say is shotguns are typically used because you can use less lethal munitions in them. So beanbags. Okay. Um, in the event, you know, something's going down. But the issue with the argument of not wanting to hit other people is, for example, double lot buck is essentially, you know, a bunch of nine millimeter rounds in a shotgun shell. Okay. And, you know, if you're shooting at any distance, like past, uh, I believe it's 35 feet, um, you start having significant uh, dispersion from the, depending on the choke in the shotgun, from that shotgun. So with a rifle, I aim at point, you know, I'm aiming at point A to point B. I know that round is going to be within six inches of point B. Whereas with a shotgun, depending on distance, you know, that round can be anywhere from an inch and a half from point B to a foot and a half from foot B or point B. Right. So... Again, I'm not going to presume to know the specific department policy for your family member. You know, I'm not going to assume that. However, uh, based on just my general knowledge, shotguns are typically used because of their less lethal capability. Okay, but you're saying you're saying in general because this is news to me. I, I assumed the opposite that that my penetration rate for for the shotgun is farther or stronger than that of a five five six. And in short answer, yes. Uh, long answer, it depends on the ammunition. So, for example, okay. double at buck and slugs, which are the most common, you know, some of the most common, you know, cartridges for shotguns in the United States, have more, significantly more penetration through drywall than a 5.56 round. However, okay. number four buckshot is slightly less, and then uh, birdshot is so much less that it's not actually guaranteed to uh, kill the individual you're shooting at. Um. And I say kill because if you're shooting at someone, you're tends to kill them. You're not trying to win if you're trying to kill them. Um, okay. And so, for example, the specific example I'm referring to is a 55 grain uh, hollow, hollow points for 556. Five, uh, grain refers to the weight of the uh, the lead slug, right? Just okay. for your knowledge. Um, due to the nature of the way the 556 five, round was developed, when it hits an object, it tumbles or in yaws right. left to right. So it moves left to right when it passes through, right? 
due to that, say you hit drywall, it's going to start tumbling, which means it may penetrate the other side of that drywall, but it's not going to pass through three different walls into your neighbor's house. Okay. Okay. It'll deflect off somewhere. Uh, I wouldn't use the word deflect because it has a very specific connotation, but essentially. Okay. All right. Interesting. Uh, I did. I did not know that. Um, so I, I guess uh, you know. I think. Uh, I think Ben. Like at the end of the day, I think the the, the question really comes down to. And you sound like honestly, you're uh, compared to what I got out of it. You're incredibly reasonable. Uh, but I think. I think at the end of the day, we see the school shootings and we want to do something, right? We see the mass shootings and we want to do something. So. What for the people out there listening? Like, what are the the actionable steps that you would think would be appropriate to resolve these things, or is to say hands in the air, it's going to be what it's going to be, kind of thing? So, the worst thing you can do is uh, take inaction and or not do anything. Uh, so, I believe that steps need to be made or do need to be made. Uh, words are hard, <laughs> but however, what steps exactly should be taken are not something you can just do on a whim. It requires thorough research. It requires specific analysis of what's actually happening. For example, the Las Vegas shooter, there was no connotation whatsoever that he was mentally ill. None. So would have added, you know, legislation preventing legally ill people from, you know, acquiring firearms would that have done anything. You know, for the, I believe it was in Connecticut, that shooting that happened in the uh, elementary school. Right. Um, That individual stole firearms from his family member. So legislation, you know, dictating whether he could or couldn't buy them for being mentally ill didn't exist. You know, in the uh, nightclub shooting in Orlando, um, there was no indication that that individual was mentally ill. He worked as private security and was licensed through the state and everything. All this stuff was purchased legally. So there was no indication that, you know, for example, a mental health, you know, restriction would have would have uh, prevented him from purchasing those firearms. So. You know, everyone says hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, we could have done this, we could have done that. But the, you know, and I don't have enough, you know, information from research or anything like that to be able to make a, a, a proper assessment as to what should be done. However, um, what people need to, what I think the first step should be is allowing the CDC to actively, the CDC and the FBI to actively acquire, you know, acquire information on it in order to build a proper data analysis, you know, hard statistics, you know, not jaded by any, you know, particular slant, you know, like the NRA or, you know, you know, left, you know, like young Turks will do. Right. But a hard data analysis. And then from those numbers, draw a conclusion from that. But they're, they, they are, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're currently blocked from, from performing those, those research. Uh, okay. Correct. The the CDC's uh, limitations are essentially they just deal with death and an injury. Okay. Um, but without politicizing the CDC to one side or another, getting the, getting the research done, and that's what I think is the first step because you cannot make a intelligent or accurate decision without all the details. Okay. Um. I I get that. Uh, do you do you get uh, do you do you do you see where, though, on the left, when we when we try and propose stuff or do stuff, that we we get shut down very hard, and and a lot of it's from the MRA? I would say that uh, goes for both sides. Um, within the United States, <laughs> we're supposed to work as a bipartisan, you know, meet in the middle on a lot of issues, but 
uh, what you see is, you know, people run on the platform being the most liberal or the most Republican uh, right. or the most conservative. Sorry. And rather than, you know, running based on a central, you know, a central, hey, I can deal with both sides. Um, for example, in the Republican Party, you'll see people run and they always say, oh, they're anti-abortion, they're pro-gun, they're pro, they're pro, you know, Christian. You know, whereas right. on the left side, you see, oh, we're always pro universal health care, always pro, you know, women's rights, that sort of thing. Which is all fine and dandy, but that doesn't do anything about bringing the media closer together. <laughs> yeah, one of, one of the things I found about trying to be in the middle is that you get yelled at at both sides. You don't get praised by both sides. You only get yelled at by both sides. Um, so, so I guess, yeah, I guess I'm getting a little depressed now um, because what you're asking for is um, – it seems like a bit of a reach in today's uh, in in today's climate. Um, well, you uh, you didn't ask me what was realistic. You asked what I thought should be done. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have an answer for what what is realistic? Like, what, like unless there, yeah. unless there is a very significant political shift, um, meaning people pull their thumbs out of their asses and decide to stop, you know, sitting in a circle jerk for their particular party and decide to reach bipartisan agreements on things. There's nothing that's going to happen that will be productive. Right. And I know that's sort of a a depressing, you know, you know, grim, dark way of looking at it. But that's my my humble opinion. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Right. So, Ben, I don't I really don't want to end end on like a depressing uh, note like this. Um, For for those of people who are out there kind of like me who are out there who, who want to learn more or who want to understand the other side's positions a little better. Um, do you have any references that, that you think they should go check out or look at or uh, uh, sort of if, if they have inquiring minds, where, where should they go? So, um, you know, I don't know if I have to do some sort of copyright disclaimer for this, but uh, on uh, YouTube, PBF uh, Range TV or in Range TV, in Range TV, that's what it's called. Um, they do very much. Um, they are certainly right leaning a journal because it's a firearms channel, but they do educational uh, type information based on different firearms from different historical time frames and that sort of thing. Um, and that's, in my opinion, a very good historical reference, like just general reference point. You know, you'll, you'll see stuff in actual, you know, function you'll learn a little bit about it, that sort of thing. Um, okay. I would personally recommend avoiding, um, things like the NRA and, uh, shooting illustrated websites. Cause that's just going to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> they are very politicized in a lot of what they write. um, as far as internet forum wise, um, I can't really recommend a whole lot because typically internet forums polarize people one direction or another. Sure. Um, so a lot of what I would recommend is reading books. I know that's horrible. Reading books nowadays is a sin, but <laughs> so read, 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 what, is, what is it? Read a what? Read a book. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're all... Okay. But any, any books in general or, um, um or just, I would, so, I mean, that's sort of difficult. I mean, it's, yeah. you just got to pick something and run. I mean, the, the baseline that I would recommend is just educating yourself on the item in question to begin with. Um, to draw a comparison, all right, I was staunchly against Planned Parenthood for a very long time, all right, because I bought into the, you know, they just do abortion stuff. But when I actually took the time to read about it and educate myself on it, I'm like, oh, well, I feel like a jackass. <laughs> you know, so if people want to take the time to, 
you know, and you can do it either from like military uh, TMs or doctrine. If you want to read that, you can watch, you know, YouTube, like in range TV, like I recommended. Um, if you're more of a YouTube person, you, know, you can, you know, podcasts and stuff like that. You can find, you know, gun related podcasts, which obviously are going to be slanted a certain way, but that does not sure. degrade the value of the information they provide. Um, the FBI has a lot of uh, articles on like their website and affiliated websites that dive into ballistic statistics and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's personally what I would recommend. I guess my problem, Ben, is that the more I learn about this, the harder a problem it becomes to solve. It, it was way easier to solve. Uh, it was way easier to solve gun right problems when I didn't know as much about it. When and that's the difficult thing is, um, generally speaking, people like to bury their head in the sand to avoid problems, so they don't have to confront those problems. And that's not just politics; that's day to day stuff. Um, and the problem is, is there's, there's no easy solution. The best thing we can try and do is reach a bipartisan answer that you know, appeases both sides, you know, blood for the blood guy, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> and the problem is that people, generally speaking, are unwilling to have their belief system challenged, and but more importantly, are unwilling to take a important look at what they believe and why they choose to believe it. It's scary. It's scary stuff. I don't think it comes naturally. Um, and, and especially in this climate, right, where it's not rewarded. Um, so... Anyway, uh, we got some work to do, Ben. That's all I can say is, is there's some work to do. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I, I appreciate you volunteering and, and helping to come out and uh, uh, letting, letting us know uh, a bit more about gun right advocacy and, and the fact that there are definitely reasonable people uh, out there that, that want change for the better and just want to make sure it's done properly. So thank you for your time. I appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Right, you bet. Well, thanks for listening to that. And this is where I'm going to uh, divert from the normal sort of um, wrap-up uh, session. And and he, here's, I think, where I've come to on guns. And I used to be what I would consider sort of middle-of-the-road-ish and, um, you know, something that... that in, in liberal <laughs> liberal California, um, I think my gun stance would have been considered middle of the roadish, but to the two A crowd, um, it, it, it I'm, I'm most definitely not. And and I would encourage uh, a lot of you who are are interested in in gun rights and stances on that to to go to Reddit. There's a number of groups there, um, the pro two A crowd. Um, and and liberals uh who you know liberal groups libertarian groups uh conservative groups that all sort of have a big uh two-way position on there so if you're interested um and if you go in there as you know being polite and seeking information uh 90 percent of the responses you get will be uh helpful and conversational you will always get 10% of people being idiots, but to be honest, uh, compared to Reddit site-wide, that's a pretty low percentage. So all that said, I think, I think where I've evolved to here is that, unfortunately, for better or for worse, and maybe this is part of the reason why gun control is, is just as third rail an issue as it is, 
is that it, it's sort of like abortion in that there's, there's really no compromise place that is going to make both sides happy. And I know there, there's something about saying, you know, a true compromise is when both sides are a little bit unhappy. But ultimately, a real compromise, both, both sides wind up being happy. And I think, I think we've reached a place with, with abortion legally where the left is content with where the, you know, at least the federal abortion right laws are. Um, but the right is completely opposed to it because there is no middle ground. Either, either you're killing a life or you're not killing a life. And I, and you're probably saying, Mike, shut up. What are you like? Come on. What are you talking about? How does this relate to guns? And the reality is, is that, and I think, I think there's just some hard truths that people need to acknowledge on both sides. And, and the hard truth, I think I want like the pro two way people to understand is that, you know what? It's, it's just not applicable in these times. And we can, we can debate. I think layman can debate the meaning of the Second Amendment quite a bit. But if you get real constitutional scholars and the real ideas behind it, that it's it's pretty clear that people running around with AR-15s is is really not what they had in mind. But let's let's set that aside. Um, the other point I would like the 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 two A crowd, and please I don't call them right wingers because the two A crowd is a lot more. Uh, diverse than than just sort of the right wing group, but I think I do would like the two A crowd to acknowledge that the AR fifteen uh, is a is a is a a weapon that can be modularized into a way that makes it a very effective killing machine, and I think that's the the root of the liberal angst around things like this that. It, it's not the gun per se. It's, it's the fact that the gun is very effective as, at what it does. It's a tool. Um, and when you make a tool that looks like or acts like, and, and please, let's not, this whole thing, oh, just, just because it looks evil doesn't mean it is evil. Like, no, there's a reason that combat arms look like that. There are efficiencies in that design. There's a reason why that stuff looks the way it does, and it's not to scare people. It's to be more effective, whether in handling or reloading or, you know, um, carrying it or, or whatever. It's, it's meant to be as efficient as possible for soldiers whose task is to kill people. So I'd, I'd, I'd like the 2A crowd to at least acknowledge that. And also keep keep stop with the disingenuous nature that you know the the AR fifteen is just a you know thirty out six Bushmaster rifle or whatever the heck it is like it's it's not it's it's the closest thing I've seen to a Lego set where every component is interchangeable modifiable um, you can make it as innocuous as you want or um, as militaristic as you want. So if I can get the 2A crowd to sort of agree with and acknowledge that, uh, at least on the surface, the, the reality of the situation is like, 
in abortion, there is no real middle ground that's going to make everyone happy or even get close to it. Because if, if AR-15s are uh, banned, um, then it, people would just use other firearms. And, and again, you know, I know a little bit what you're thinking, you know, oh, well, but it won't be as efficient, yada, yada, yada. But on the other hand, you know, if, if, if someone's got, you know, a trench coat with eight or nine pistols in them, uh, in the trench coat and a whole bunch of magazines, they're still going to be capable of, of performing mass shootings. And even with pistols. And, and I think the one thing that the, the, the 2A crowd has right is that I don't think the left would stop at the AR-15s. I, I, when you look at the statistics, when you look at the number of deaths caused by guns, and then you look at the number, the percentage of deaths uh, caused by pistols versus everything else, the next thing to come under attack is going to be the pistol. And it just it just is. Um, and if if the AR-15s were removed, the crazy folks would go around with a whole bunch of pistols trying to shoot people. Uh, would they be as effective? No, I don't think so. But could they still kill dozens of people if they wanted to? Absolutely. So I get that. Like, I, I get that. And I, I, I think that's the problem, is that we're not going to eliminate mass shootings until we eliminate guns. Um, and there are people that know this and understand this and that, that, that that's sort of the hidden message behind this complete struggle is, is that we're playing tug of war over a relatively small field you know, we're playing tug of war over a 10 foot mud pit and the ball keeps going back and forth. But, but the reality is, is that what we're really tugging at war for is that if, if one side wins, quote unquote wins, the other side is just completely done. Right. And I'm, I guess I'm talking about as a, as a going forward point to the status quo. Now, if, if the two A advocates win, you know, there, you know, there are people that want to fully legalize everything, uh, some machine guns and et cetera, et cetera. And again, that's to me, I guess that's just the, the knot in that tug of war bouncing back and forth, but within that mud pit area, the only way that we prevent mass shootings really is by doing what Britain and Australia did, which is getting rid of all of them. Um, or is getting rid of as many as possible. And that is a extremely expensive process. Um, it would be an undertaking that would take us decades to go through. Um, and we'd have a huge amount of civil resistance and civil disobedience uh, in order to get there. And so I think, I think the left needs to have a, a long, hard think about you know what does that what does that really mean what what does removing guns 
really mean in terms of the effort uh, and potentially the, the lives lost, right? How many Wacos or Ruby Ridges are we going to have over two decades if the government, you know, comes out and say, says, you know, hey, you, you got to give up your guns. So I feel like we're just, we're in this weird hybrid state of, you know, where it's, it's sort of like a reverse abortion thing. So the 2A crowd is, is kind of okay with where we are right now, kind of like the abortion crowd is kind of okay with where they are now. But the other, the quote unquote other side is completely upset with the status quo and wants to do something about it. And again, just, just to milk this analogy to death, you know, in, in, in the abortion world, you know, the, the things are, okay, well, let's, you know, let's provide for better foster homes or let's incentivize adoption or let's provide other alternatives uh, to abortion. And I think the left's best chance, honestly, is to pursue those sort of things but as they relate to 2A, that are tangential um, to the ability to pull people's guns away from them. And so that being, you know, the mental health stuff and, you know, deeper background checks um, and, and better common sense gun laws um, and better enforcement of the existing laws. It's it's tough. I, I just don't see um, a way forward that is a quote-unquote compromise that where, where both sides can live with it. And I think that's that's the heart and the root of the issue. Um, I wish... There was, uh, uh, but I don't, I don't think there is, and I think we're stuck here. I don't, um, I guess I don't, I don't see us uh, getting to any place off of this 10 foot mud strip that we're fighting in. I think, I think we're here. So, you know, if, uh, if you're on the 2A side listening to this, you know, I don't, I don't think it would hurt your cause for you guys to be a little bit more honest about, you know, the Second Amendment and what it was originally intended for. Um, and, you know, a little bit more honest about the reality of the AR-15 and, and why it's designed uh, is the way it is in, in, a, in a military build-out spec. I'm talking about and on the left you know I guess maybe start acknowledging that we're not going to get any guns away we're not going to have any substantial reduction in guns and we have to look at this in a different way than restricting arms sales And what those ways are, I don't know. Um, I, I don't want 
the government having unfettered access to say, you know, you get a gun and, and you don't get a gun um, in any sort of system that can be, you know, sort of abused. So um, it, it's just a big Gordian knot. And I love, like, I love problems. I love solving problems. I love even the idea that we're on a path to solving a problem. And I just don't think we, we may progress. We, the tug of war, you know, one side may get some small victories out over the other. It may go back and forth over the years. But if we really want to stop school shootings and mass shootings, I, I think we have to start thinking about other ways of accomplishing that. And I, I absolutely do not think that, you know, arming school armed guards or, or stuff like that is the answer. Um, but I also don't think that if we ban the sale of the AR-15 tomorrow, uh, that, that that would have uh, any effect uh, in the other direction. Anyway, sorry to be depressing. Uh, depressing subject. Uh, depressing concept and unfortunately um, I don't I don't see a path out of this one so uh, it will go on school shootings will go on um, mass shootings will go on and it's just so glib to say that's the price of freedom and I don't, I don't think it's the price of freedom. I think it's the price of lack of effort in meaningful directions and the lack of making very hard choices with very hard consequences about gun ownership in America. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. The next one will be Cheerio, I promise. Thanks for listening.